This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast. I want to remind you that eating someone out and chewing someone out is not the same thing. I'm your co-host, Alice Vaughn, and with me, I have my gorgeous co-host, Meredith Jacklett. Hi. How are you doing today, Meredith? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Glad to be back co-hosting with you. Uh, we'll try not to get out of hand this time. Like, I won't drink, like, a bottle of wine during the show. <laughs> In my defense, I came prepared. Mine's only a quarter full to begin with. Perfect. I left the whole bottle in the other room and just filled my glass up. So I was like, this is all. This is it. But I filled it, like, really high. <laughs> I didn't get the memo that this was a wine event. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. You're going to see us progressively getting drunker and drunker <laughs> as the show goes on. I'm sorry for you, but I'm excited for the audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, that third voice you guys are hearing today is Dr. Kristen Mack. And Kristen, you know, I could give your bio an intro, but I think you can give it best. <laughs> so I'm Dr. Kristen Mark. I am the Joycelyn Elders Endowed Chair for Sexual Health Education at University of Minnesota Medical School. That is a mouthful. I was reading through your bio, and you have a really impressive resume. Um, you know your sex. I do. Um, and your sexual health. <laughs> and your I am a sex and relationships researcher, yes. Yeah. Um, I do know my sex. When did you decide that that's where you wanted to focus your career? What kind of, like, spurned that? Who burned you? <laughs> <laughs> no one, actually. I think that's a really common question, though, because it's not like you're a little girl and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And someone's like, I want to be a sex researcher. No, I think I didn't even really know that it was a field that was an option. And I think that it's a fascinating field of study. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something in the area of like psychology and public health. And this is a really great cross between those things. So it was a pretty pragmatic decision around like, what do I want to do a PhD in? And how am I going to find something that I'm passionate enough about? And that's like relevant to the general public enough mm -hmm. that I feel comfortable and excited to like study that for a long period of time. I mean, when you do a PhD, you're you're really diving deep into like a very specific topic for a really long period of time. So you've right. really got to be passionate about that topic. And that was the case for this. I like was always really comfortable talking about sex with my friends or with my family. And not everyone is. Like that's part of yeah. my yeah. the work that I do is that not everyone is as comfortable as the three of us in talking about right. sex. <laughs> and so that was a natural fit in that I was already – I already had that sort of comfort level that's necessary. I think it's such a fascinating topic that could literally just be like studied forever, constantly. Yeah, I'll never run out of research questions, right. which never. is part of why I love it. Yeah. They'll like never stop having new things to learn about and just like as like – people's relationship with sex evolves over time. There's constantly something to learn. Yeah. And that's why I love the cross between like sex and relationships too. Mm -hmm. I'm also a relationships researcher and a couples therapist. So mm -hmm. it's really nice to be able to have that cross because so much changes over the course of a relationship or from like one partner to another partner, all of those things really play into people's sex lives. Totally people will say like, oh, it's not all about sex or like they'll have kind of the impression that like sex shouldn't be the most important thing. Like it's not all about sex. And of course, a relationship isn't. Who's saying that? But I know, like my ex-husband. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but no, but you hear that all the time. Like, oh, it shouldn't be all about sex, but like kind of. 
Yeah. You know, like it's a lot more important than like puritanical people want to think it is. Look, when it comes down to sex, it is a big part of a relationship. And yeah, mm -hmm. the sex doesn't have to be perfect initially, but you should be comfortable with your partner talking about how do we make this better? Yeah. Because it is that big of an issue. I can't imagine. And unfortunately, we, you know, we do have puritanical aspects of society, especially when it comes to religiosity, where they're like, no, it's faith and family and God and sex is kind of like down on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. But where's family without sex? Right. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, where do they think the babies are going to come from? Like, yeah. Immaculate conception? <laughs> right. I also think that, like, things that are not just, like, intercourse or whatever are all part of sex. Like, flirting with your partner, basic making them feel desired in other ways. That it all is part of sex. And it's all so, so huge. And it, like, is the differentiator between being friends and being in a relationship. Right. Yeah. And like sexual health is a part of overall health too. And mm -hmm. sexual health goes far beyond just like what your sex life looks like. So I think we often that's ignored in the context of like broader conversations about health. And that is part of my job is to try and integrate sex into health because sexual health is such an important part of overall well-being. Oh, totally. I apologize, by the way, for asking, like, the first question was, who burned you so you could get into this field? <laughs> That's okay. I started there because considering how bad sex education is in this country, I have heard some horrific things. I mean, hell, I've had a partner who assumed, just assumed, we had the internet, that our periods come out of our pee hole, our urethra. That's not how it works. Right. Um, the number of men that I have met that don't know that there's another hole there that, like, I it blows my mind. <laughs> I mean, I think there are women who don't know Sure. That. There are definitely women who don't. Yeah. So I think, you know, who burned me? Well, I would say our educational system. You know, <laughs> right. like, it yeah. was not a person that the did. Government. Okay, yeah, the, the government. Yeah, the government, right. Well, I'm Canadian, so <laughs> oh, okay. uh, we did have it a little bit better up there. But it's definitely a real failure of our educational system that people are not getting the kind of education about this. And now mm -hmm. with pornography – a lot of people are getting their sex ed from porn, but they don't have the porn literacy to go with it. So they're right. not getting the accurate information about porn that like, this can be a healthy part of your sex life, but here are the components of it that you need to watch out for related to this is like not real. These are actors, not mm -hmm. this isn't how this works, you know? They have literally been training for this. Right. This is not how you touch a clitoris. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every single time someone's getting fingered in porn, it's like really aggressive. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? <laughs> or like finger blasting really hard. And it's just like, no, it's very delicate. <laughs> I was at an arcade not too long ago with my boyfriend and we were playing like the Simpsons arcade game. And there's one uh, part of the game where you have to uh, click back and forth the buttons. <laughs> it's a speed test really of who could blow up the balloon fastest. And clearly I won. Right. But I mean, yeah, I have seen, <laughs> yeah, I've seen the same motion on in film where it's like, oh, that, that looks uncomfortable. Why are we slapping things. Yeah. 
And some people like that, right? Like, yeah. so that's just it too, is that like some people do like that. And so there's such a var- wide variety of what sex looks like for people. And that is also not expressed in the context of porn. Like we don't see mm-hmm. that there's a wide variety and like that, oh, you should communicate with your partner and see what they like. Because mm-hmm. even from one relationship to the next, you can't just like translate those skills and assume that they're going to apply. Totally. And some people like don't know what they like. Sure. I mean, I think like a lot of women don't know what they like or maybe they do, but they're like too afraid to say anything because we've always kind of, I mean, the pleasure part of sex has been left out completely in teaching what it's about. But yeah, I think a lot of people like legitimately don't know what they like and they're like afraid to push their boundaries or try new things or, you know, even talk about it. Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry. I, for some reason, my mind was still stuck on like, certain people not knowing what they were doing in the bedroom. So my brain just flat out went to a guy like fingering a woman like he's rewinding a VHS tape. <laughs> <laughs> like a corkscrew type And movement. someone might like that. And that's right. okay. Someone like, might. Right. No, we're not here to that's yuck. That's fine. We're not here to yuck other people's yums. Yeah, but I think totally. Bingo. there's really like the point is that it is variety and mm-hmm. that's not emphasized in the context of porn education. Um, yeah. And we need to exactly. increase our porn literacy in general. Like that would be a huge ad for sex education. Totally. Mm-hmm. I think like one of the things too is like we're getting like, you know, a whole generation of young adults who their first exposure to sex is porn. And I think that, yeah, lots of people are into a lot of more wild taboo, like a broad range of things. But I think like anyone baseline starting out having sex, like let's, let's get the basics down first, like (laughs) before we start beating the shit out of each other. And I think like there comes this like assumption that like, oh, that's just how like you start out the gate, like doing wild porn shit. Wild porn shit is awesome, but you like have to work up to it. You know? Yeah. Like, my clitoris on the first try wasn't at a point where it's like you could rub it like you're trying to get a stain out. Right. It took time. (laughs) I think that's another thing, like, not talking about masturbating enough. Like, teenagers. I mean, probably now, but, like, because everyone's doing it. But, like, it's always, like, you hide it, you know? I mean, the person, uh, Jocelyn Elders, I mean, who – so, question. So, did she start the school or the program – no, my my endowed pr- professorship is just in her name. So I have an endowed okay. professorship at the U, and it is in Joycelyn Elder's name because okay. of the fact that what you're probably about to say, I'll let you. <laughs> I mean, you might as well tell the audience. <laughs> so yeah, Joycelyn Elders um, really endorsed there being masturbation education in the context of sex education in schools. She had several mm-hmm. other um, very strong opinions that were super well-educated and really smart that um, were similarly sort of considered risky, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous, but is still the case to this day. So I don't think anything has really changed since then, but she was um, the... Surgeon General under the Clinton administration. And okay. for that view of trying to integrate masturbation into sex education, in addition to a few other views, she stepped down from that position because of those mm. sort of really, really quite innovative suggestions for how we can improve the health of the nation, frankly. <laughs> but right. Um, right. that's really what it how was. How dare she? <laughs> how, right, right, right. So yeah, she's been a real champion of like 
inclusive sex education that includes like sexual pleasure. What a novel idea. Um, right. Sexual pleasure <laughs> being like an important part of what we teach young people so that they can make informed decisions and like be empowered to make those decisions. Yeah. I don't think I was taught anything about any sort of pleasure zone until my slutty friend in ninth grade, um, who was way more advanced than the rest of us, she knew what she was doing. God bless her. She's got a beautiful family now. Uh, but she And told even if me, she didn't, still that's great. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, <laughs> she's like taking such a, like, she's such a different person now. And I love everything about her entire personality. I remember her telling me that her boyfriend went down on her. And I was like, at first, you know, I'm like 13, 14 thinking like, that's disgusting. And then she was like, no, 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 girl, just, just trust me. And then like, when I got a boyfriend, I was like, okay, well, so-and-so's boyfriend went down on her and she said it was fucking awesome. So you want to, you want to do this or what? (laughs) And it was very like, that was my experience of like learning that sex could feel good. That's great. Rather than just like, not, you know, knowing anything about it other than like, this is how you get pregnant. Like, you know, right. And I feel like we shouldn't have to rely on our friend who started fucking before all of us. You know? And it's, it's usually not even, this is how you get pregnant. It's always, it's never, oh. that's actually not taught. No. What's taught is here's how you prevent pregnancy, right? Like here's how you don't. And many times the answer to that in the context of the education system in the U S is like, just don't do it. And right. that's just not realistic. I mean, it's such a, it's an awful approach. I mean, we need to be more pragmatic about our approaches to sexual health. Totally. I I learned about sex ed in religion class in Catholic school in eighth grade. So I was taught the exact biology of how sexual intercourse works and like why you do it. But it was completely in the context of you do this when you want to have a baby. And it has and, to be a man and it has to be a woman yes, and you have exactly. to be married. And it's and only the penetration and it's like all the things. There was no, none of the foreplay, none of the context, none of the desire part of it. And so in my little innocent brain, I was like, oh, well, I don't want to get pregnant, so I'm not going to do that. Right. So like that was it. Which actually is a great segue into uh studies on even bi-relationships. We mm-hmm. don't have a lot of those. And I saw Kristen, I was snooping on your website, that you had participated in conducting a survey? Yeah. So I'm a researcher, so I conduct lots of different studies all the time. That's my job. And um, one of the studies I think that you're referring to is probably um, a study that we did of couples where one member of the couple identifies as bisexual um, in the context of a mixed sex relationship. So like something that often happens if you identify as bi, I'm, I'm bisexual. So when I get into a relationship with a man, people might assume that I am straight because I'm in a relationship mm-hmm. with a man or when I've been in a relationship with a woman, then it's assumed that I'm a lesbian. And mm-hmm. so your bisexual identity ends up sort of like getting erased actually. And that is something that has a minority stress effect on those individuals. Like having your identity erased, not feeling like you're being seen by your partner or even just by society at large can be really hard. I mean, I think anybody who's part of any minority group can identify with that. And so we studied like, what are the ways in which you can protect your relationship from bi-negativity or like bi-phobia interfering with the relationship and sexual satisfaction? And then like, what are the sort of protective mechanisms for that? Mm -hmm. The bisexuality, like 
erasure. I recently interviewed um, a guy friend I know who is a writer for Men's Health, Zachary Zane, um, who is a bisexual man. And I know plenty of bisexual women. I have a lot of bisexual female friends. I wouldn't consider myself fully bisexual. I'm somewhere in the, I don't know, fluid, whatever. Sexuality is made up. Um, But he, you know, had such an interesting perspective on that and how you know, he has had more romantic relationships as he's gotten older with men. And so he like has such an, a bizarrely different experience with um, the way that his bisexuality is viewed versus women's women. I feel like female bisexuality is constantly fetishized by straight men constantly. And for him, his response, his reaction was that like a lot of times there are so many straight women who will not touch a bi man. And I think it's so fucking dumb and weird. But um, there's just like a weird stigma. I think people just like want to be able to put you in a box to make themselves feel more comfortable. I remember last year watching the TV show Love is Blind and they actually had a whole interaction where there was a bisexual male. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. He formed the connection with a straight woman, mm-hmm. and during the course of um, you know meeting each other, he came out to her as, "Hey, just so you know, I am bisexual," and she completely called it off. Mm-hmm. It, it was not okay with her. She like weaponized it against him. It was really gross. It really is, and I'm I'm genuinely curious what is it about the psychology where for some straight women this is not something that they can accept and. I, I wish I had an answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's a really great weeding out mechanism, right? Like, yeah, bi- okay. I feel like bisexuality is a really great weeding out mechanism. If somebody's not accepting of that, or like, feels it really shows the insecurity of that individual as opposed to anything about you. But that's obviously hard mm-hmm. to look at, at it that way if you're like being rejected by somebody. But really, it is about their own insecurities. You know, I think, Alice, you were about to ask, like, what were our findings of those protective mechanisms? And I think some of those were like being recognized by your partner as like having your identity celebrated by your partner and acknowledged by your partner. Things like going to pride with your partner and like acknowledging the fact that they are part of this community. Mm -hmm. Um, Another piece was like feeling the, for the bisexual individual to feel like they are part of the LGBTQ community, because not only is this rejection happening on the side of straight individuals, but rejection happens also on the part of the gay community. So for bisexual men equally are rejected by, Oh, Absolutely, yeah, by gay men. So, or yeah. just like, really? yeah, or, you're not oh, really bi. You're totally. just you're just on your way to being gay, and yep. so that's like a really strong stereotype that bisexual men really have to battle with. And it's also a problem for bi women too, um, where like if someone's lesbian, then they might not be willing to date a bi woman because of the fact that they'll be concerned that they're just gonna like want to go back to men. I've heard that as well from a yeah. lot of my bisexual female friends that like. And they're like buy for buy, basically, is like kind of this like where they fall most comfortably. Yeah. Which is like narrowing it down so, so small and pretty unfair. Right. So, I mean, there were so many studies that it seems like you've conducted and participated in. What's one of your favorites? There was a study that I did looking at resilience in um, women who had experienced sexual trauma and like how they sort of made their way back to a super healthy, happy sexual relationship. And that one's one of my favorites simply because it was like so interesting to hear them describe what sexual pleasure is and like how 
sexy consent is and like Mm -hmm. just how important boundaries are. I don't know. It was just like all of the things that I think I wish that we all learned regardless of whether or not we'd experienced sexual trauma. Like what are the things that we should be teaching about consent? And it really like highlighted how important those things are for everybody. So I really loved doing that study. It was also like just great to look at the resilience side of that and see how people worked their way back and like providing really tangible strategies for getting into a healthy, happy, super satisfying relationship. And what are those strategies or like disclosure to a romantic partner? Like how do you tell someone that that's happened to you without making them feel like they can't ever have sex with you? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's a really hard balance. And so it was really cool, like listening to women talk about that. And I think it'll be like a good contribution to the literature. I think that's such a hard conversation to have with like a new partner that you're getting intimate with or whatever, like kind of deciding when should I tell them this or how is this affecting the terms of our relationship? Or is this something that's not even going to go that far? So I don't even need to bother saying anything like that's a, a really tricky conversation. Totally. Yeah. So this study is really helpful for that. But a lot of my research, the majority, vast majority of my research has been in the area of like sexual satisfaction, relationship satisfaction, and sexual desire and desire discrepancy. So like, you know, if one of you wants sex way more than the other, how do you like navigate or like mitigate that and work together to not have it impact your satisfaction? That was like literally something that ended my marriage was like, I wanted sex and my partner did not. And we went to counseling and it kind of came to a point where our counselor, she was like, look, dude, romance your wife, have sex with her. Like, I I don't know. We're not getting to the root of another issue here. And I think later on, it kind of down the line, we both kind of realized he just wasn't in love with me anymore. And that was what it was. It wasn't that he didn't find me attractive or it wasn't actually about sex. It was about something else. I think that's something that happens so often. I'm a sex worker. I do OnlyFans and I have done sugar babying in the past and something and something that I've experienced with my subscribers now and with men that I, you know, sugared for was a lot of it was they've been married for however long, 15 years, and their wives don't want to have sex with them anymore after they've had a family and it's just everything else in their relationship is great but they are missing like the fun young sexy thing and I began to feel personally like shitty about sugar babying to married men so I stopped doing it but I do have like subscribers on OnlyFans that they like thank me for the sexual like satisfaction they're getting out of like subscribing to me and getting to talk to me and stuff because that's the only thing that was lacking for them in, um, you know, their relationship. And it makes them like more a better partner in other ways. But it's also kind of like, ah, this kind of sucks because you're doing this behind your wife's back. Like that's shitty. But it's kind of like, how do you meet in the middle there if like the desire is just simply not there? And I understand that because I've also been in relationships where I'm the one with a higher libido. And it's not that they love me any less. It's just I happen to have dated men where, you know what, you just happen to want it once or twice a week. uh, And I am a once to twice type of date kind of gal. And with some men, I was able to resolve it and figure out, all right, here's how we can go about it. Like, for example, in one relationship that I was in where I was a higher performing libido and the other 
person was just not really up for it, you know, uh, however many times I wanted it in a week, strap on. You know what? And they ended up getting there uh, 90% of the time. We were able to figure out a way to satisfy me, get mm. them in the mood to want to get there, uh, even if they were like a one out of five when it was like, hey, you in the mood? Mm, not really. But, you know, once we started, it's like, all right, you know what? I'm in. I'm game now. Mm. Um, for some people, it could be that. For some people, it's uh, having that additional emotional connection with another person, like with you on OnlyFans. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, I've been in situations where I was with a partner and I was like, all right, they check nine out of 10 boxes. Mm -hmm. Here's one box. So you're into X and you will never be into, let's say, something like, I don't know, ball kicking. I don't know. Let's right. just go with that. <laughs> Great. So I'm like specific thing. Exactly. But this other person I can ha play out potentially a fantasy with and that will fill this potential gap. And then mm -hmm. I'm fine with my partner. And, it, you know, you're right, though. It does get tricky of where is it okay to talk to your partner? I, and I guess what it comes down to is not making the assumption on behalf of your partner that they're not okay with it and therefore you have to do this. Yeah. And also, it's it can be a lot harder in the context within which a man has lower desire than a woman in a relationship because our society also paints men as being, like, always mm -hmm. ready, always willing, always having high desire. Mm -hmm. Too much pressure. Exactly. It can be, like, particularly hard to then talk to your partner about that. And that can build up, like, Meredith, you were talking about in your marriage, like, that probably was something that was hard to talk about for both mm -hmm. of you and to approach because of the fact that it's, like, not fitting the stereotype of what heterosexual marriages are supposed to look right. like. Um, and so it's just so limiting. These scripts that we've created for all of these different categories are just so incredibly limiting and damaging to everyone, like not just to one group. Absolutely. That was, it was so difficult and delicate to bring up because he felt emasculated. Exactly. You know, and it was like, there's no part of me that had that intention or anything, but because he was raised in a very, you know, traditional way to, like, you are macho, you are the man, you like to fuck kind of thing. And so for me to be the aggressor, kind of more like our personalities also, I just have a much more dominant personality than he did. And so for those traditional roles to be kind of reversed, I can completely understand why he felt, like, very defensive about it. There wasn't a good real resolution there other than separating ways, which was by far the most healthy, mature thing we both chose to do. And we're both very happy and yeah. supportive of one another's lives now. Right. That's great. Yeah. It was completely mutual decision, but like there was a lot of that struggle there and it comes from just like these traditional things you're fed. And also as women, like being embarrassed you know, like when I was younger, like in my 20s, being embarrassed to like want to fuck a lot, right. you know, like because you're a slut if you want to like go bang whoever or whatever. And that unfortunately like still exists. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's so stupid. It makes no sense. Oh, what's your body count? Uh, well, if I murder you, it's one. <laughs> I right. couldn't believe like, I learned that that term from my students a couple years ago. And I was like, wait, what are you all talking about with this body count scenario? They're like, that's like how many people you've had sex with. And I'm like, what? A body count? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how many confirmed kills? 
Well, maybe, uh, maybe I've been watching too many uh, true crime <laughs> shows, <Right>. but <laughs> that yeah. does not sound healthy to me. <laughs> no. I'm going to just start answering that with like six. Oh, you've only slept with six people? No. That's how many I've killed. Oh, oh that's, that's what, what you were asking? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I don't know that number. I, I stopped counting years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one should be counting. Like, it's no. just such a silly, yeah, it's... I have not had anyone ask me that question in, in a very long time because, generally speaking, because, like, meeting someone on dating apps or something, generally speaking, the just kind of impression I put forward, I put my social media on there, it's pretty clear that I'm not going to answer that question and, like... I have done a good job at weeding out the kind of people who would ask me that in the first place. But I can't, I feel like the last time, I don't know, it was maybe like five years ago that someone asked me that. And I was just kind of like, what? Well, first of all, I've been having sex a really long time. I'm in my 30s. So I don't know. You do some math. It's not my problem. Like, so stupid. 365 days a year. (laughs) (laughs) I often like... Co- you know, I talk to people, I've, I've dealt with this in couples therapy before where that's come up um, with clients and it's sort of like, okay, let's get at the root of why you're asking this question. Like that's a really important right. question to ask yourself. Like, so if someone were to ask someone that I would suggest that they, instead of answering right away saying like, I'm curious why you want to know, like what information does that tell you? And like, what is your motivation for knowing that number? And that will tell you a lot more about that person than like any other component of that conversation. Right. Because oftentimes, I'm sure asking that half the time, a person would like stutter over it and not have like a straight answer for you. Or it would come from a religious standpoint. It really all boils down to some kind of insecurity, in my opinion. Right. I think that's where like everyone's hangups about sex comes from some sort of insecurity somewhere. Insecurity and, and trauma. Actually, this weaves in nicely too. Uh, so there was also another study you did regarding sexual health and relationships, regarding attachment style, um, and how that may impact sexual desire, satisfaction, relationship satisfaction. And I didn't get a chance to read this study. So I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. That was a really interesting study. So for anyone who's listening that's not familiar with attachment styles, there's like secure attachment and then like avoidant attachment and anxious attachment. We can think about it in that way. And like secure attachment is in the middle and sort of you're on like a continuum with each of the others. Um, So people who are like anxiously attached tend to like pull you closer, right? They're like very, they want to like get you close. They want like they need that security. They need, they're always reaching for that security. Whereas someone who's avoidantly attached in their adult romantic relationships tends to like, once they feel that closeness happening, puts a wall up and puts the arm out to kind of like push somebody back a little bit. So you can imagine that if two people are partnered and one of them is anxiously attached and the other is avoidantly attached, you're getting a constant push and pull that Mm -hmm. can be really, really hard to manage. And the way that this impacts sexual desire in particular what we tend to see is that like sexual desire can sometimes be almost superficially increased in someone who's anxiously attached Mm -hmm. because that like desire for closeness, sex is one way to kind of pull a partner closer and to like feel that closeness and to keep them close. Whereas if you're securely attached, then you tend to be more comfortable with 
space and like Mm -hmm. less anxious and less avoidant. And, you know, there's less sort of like constant chatter in your mind about like, well, what's, what's this mean? And what's this mean? And what's this, you know, you're not analyzing it as much. So what we found was I'd have to like refresh myself on the specifics of that study. But from what I recall, we found that yes, people who have higher sexual desire tend to be higher in anxious attachment, especially in Mm -hmm. the context of longer term relationships. Whereas in the context of those longer term relationships, people who are more avoidantly attached tend to have lower sexual desire for that partner, but they don't have lower sexual desire for like solitary sex. So they still might have high desire for masturbation Mm -hmm. or they might like find strangers attractive and find that to spark their desire, but their, Mm -hmm. their partner doesn't necessarily do that for them. In some ways that is like protective for them of like not getting too close because at underlying all of this, underlying all attachment style is this idea of like fear of abandonment at the end of the day Mm -hmm. or like fear of um, whatever your deepest, darkest sort of fear is. That's what we work on getting at in things like couples therapy is like, how do we get down underneath into those like fears, those like deeper fears and that fear of abandonment, you know, if you don't get too close to somebody, then you're never going to have to be Mm -hmm. afraid of being abandoned. And with the anxious attachment, it's like, I need to keep you close so that I know you're not going to leave me. (laughs) I feel like I like mood swing in between the two. Yeah. <laughs> like depending on the situation. I was super, super avoidant for a very long time. And it was very much because I was like recently divorced and like didn't want any of that. But I noticed myself pretty secure attachment with any person I'm in a close interpersonal relationship with, like no stress. But if I really, 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 really like somebody and we're just in the like talking stage or just dating, like we haven't like made a commitment that I'm like anxious attachment because I'm kind of like, where is this going? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> so that's not necessarily an indication of your attachment style. Okay. So it's once you get into the attachments phase. So attachment bonds tend to form around like three years into a relationship is when your like deepest attachment bonds begin to okay. form. And so we always talk about like two years plus or minus six months because one between like one and a half years and two and a half years, those bonds begin to form. And also that's when like passionate love shifts to what's called companionate love. And so those are sort of like the really solidifying pieces. And that's when you're going to get to know your attachment style. And it's often really shows itself in the context of fights. So when you have conflict is your natural inclination to put up walls and stonewall somebody and walk away? Or is your natural inclination to want to like pull them closer, pull them closer, pull them closer? Got it. Got it. Okay. So wait, what does punching a wall mean? (laughs) Um, If you- Lay off the Mountain Dew. If you punch a wall when you get into fights, you mean? (laughs) Code red is delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Easy there, Kyle. (laughs) You might need to find other outlets for your anger. (laughs) That's what that means. (laughs) Some emotional regulation training might be in store. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I think fights, I like, that's where I'm pretty like in the middle. I'm a pretty like peacekeeper, kind of logical problem solver type of person. Yeah. Not a wall puncher. Not at all. I'm way too much of a pussy (laughs) because it would hurt. (laughs) So that's interesting. Um, you know, then I'm genuinely curious uh, within some long-term couples. And I, I've seen couples where, you know, one person is like, yeah, you know what? 
I'm comfortable in this relationship, not afraid of losing this person. And that person actually, it's funny because I've seen relationships where that person began as someone who was very clingy to that individual, someone very jealous. And then over the years became so comfortable and confident in their relationship, they wanted to experience a more poly mentality uh, versus the other person was comfortable and then eventually develops into after, let's say, a two or three year mark to, nope, only want to sleep with this person. That's it. And that's within the same relationship. Yeah, so I don't know if you want to dissect that. Well, one. it could be a, it's it's a, about a whole variety of factors, right? So like attachment style doesn't tell the whole story. So there's probably like maybe like hurts happened throughout that relationship that made that other person well, but it, no, that sounds like actually both of them were pretty like confident in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So maybe they just like that's their preferences just changed over time and they didn't grow together, but they began to grow like in different ways for one of them to end up wanting to go like into sort of poly and the other one not. I feel like that is like relative with age too. I feel like I, in my twenties when I was younger, felt so much more of like a traditional monogamous relationship is the only way. And if you even suggest that you want to open this, then like you just want to cheat on me. Like, a little more just like insecure. And then like, as I've gotten older, I'm still like kind of on the fence about how I would feel about a poly relationship. It's kind of one of those like, oh, I'd have to know, you know, once I was there. But I'm so much more like open to the idea. And I think it comes a lot from like knowing yourself more, even w- not even within the confines of the relationship. Yeah. And I think that's just maturity too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just, it's a matter of, Maturity, same thing with jealousy, you know, like I think when people are younger, they're more likely to get really jealous in relationships. And then once they get older, they begin to realize like that actually isn't going to get me anywhere that I want to be in a relationship. So yeah, maturity plays a big role. You know, Kristen, this entire ploy of having you on the show was really to just dissect our own relationships. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, so also I just started talking to this guy and I'm <laughs> We know a good counselor what they cost. It's not cheap. Right. <laughs> and it's not covered by my insurance. We, we needed a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> The worst part was last time I went to therapy. It wasn't even the conversation I had with the therapist. It was in the waiting room. So I'm a huge Jeopardy fan. I love Jeopardy. Whenever I can, I try watching it. And in the waiting room, there was a magazine on the table with Alex Trebek on the cover. And this is, bear in mind, Alex Trebek is dead. He has been for a while. But you know how, like, they buy magazines and never update them? God. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So this, the People magazine cover said, how love saved my life. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, yes. So how did that impact your therapy session? (laughs) Oh, I was very triggered throughout the entire thing. (laughs) Message to all counseling offices and centers, update your magazines, for the love of God. Especially (laughs) if the cover person's dead. Don't send us down a dark road. Like, if it's Tom Hanks, uh, Alex Trebek, uh, Mr. Rogers, just assume, you know what? If they've passed, replace it. Wait, Tom Hanks hasn't died. No, he hasn't. Oh, gosh. I was like, did I miss something here? (laughs) No, but, like, anyone who's just, like, 
kind of old. <laughs> Tom Hanks is not that old. <laughs> I'm joking. He's like my mom's age. He's not old. <laughs> He's not that old. <laughs> but I don't know what ages are in celebrity years. Are they like sure? Years? Yeah, it's hard to I'm tell. Not sure, it's really hard to <laughs> you tell. You know, hard to say. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm placing my bets on Chet first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think probably. Mm-hmm. I don't know how White Boy Summer is going to do for him. We all pretty much like put the kibosh on that almost as soon as it started. We need to just be frank with ourselves. If Tom Hanks is America's dad, Chet Hanks is America's son. Unfortunately. (laughs) No, no, no. We deserve this. (laughs) You know what? Actually, you're right. And it would would make sense that America's son is someone who um, steals from other cultures. You know, I don't know anything about this, but Chet Hanks I don't is like follow. Tom Hanks. Chet Hanks is Tom Hanks's other son who like is like has developed like a Jamaican accent. This is a completely white human being who like fancies himself a rapper um, and an actor. And he said it was going to be white boy summer. I, it's just a lot to experience. Interesting choice for this summer. Yeah. What I'm just uh-huh. saying Very. is... um. Kristen, if you have a chance, there is an older movie uh, from 2003 called uh, Malibu's Most Wanted. Yeah. he's. If that's you watch him, that, basically. yeah, just autobiography right there. Okay. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you have like Colin Hanks on his like complete contrast as just like being just like a kind of normal dude. Tom and Rita's other son. <laughs> like. I don't know how we got on no Chet Hanks here, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, regardless, all I'm saying is I think the reason that, um, so for a little while, Chet Hanks was like a little bit of a thing on the internet because people were like, oh, he's hot and whatnot. I'm like, it was, Kristen, you should honestly, so if you, if you Google him, all I'm saying is America doesn't love Chet Hanks. They just miss Channing Tatum. Ah, I see. Yes. We need another, yes. what's that movie that he's in? We need another. Magic uh, Mike. Magic Mike, yeah. Yeah, we do. We need another male stripper from Tampa <laughs> to make it big, you know? <laughs> Kristen, I guess uh, final words, uh, queries, places we could send people, uh, thing, additional comments you want to make to people where it's like, no, you don't actually know your love language. You just, you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Your love language is bullshit because you feel all of them all the time. That's me personally. Is it actually bullshit? I believe it if it's pseudo. No, I don't know. I because mine change constantly, okay. and so I'm always like, I don't fucking know. Yeah, I mean, I think there there's not a ton of empirical evidence to support them, but there's some, and mm-hmm. um, definitely, I think it can be helpful just to be introspective about what your love language is and understanding what your partner's is. That's helpful for like expressing love to someone in a in a way that works for them but right. <laughs> um <laughs> but I don't think love languages is where I would like close out I would cl- probably close out in just like we're doing now like talking more about sex I mean what your podcast does in general like tries to talk really frankly about that stuff and I think that's really important and something that we need way more of in our society because we just don't talk about it enough. And all these issues that we talked about, like the sexual trauma stuff, the sexual desire discrepancy, mm-hmm. all of that would benefit from more sexual communication that's like honest and open between partners. But so many people are so uncomfortable talking about it. 
my position, I'm, at, I'm the director of education at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health. That's part of University of Minnesota Medical School. And so we have a clinic where we see patients, but we also do like a lot of outreach and trying to sort of digest the science to the public in ways like this, you know, of just we need people to be more comfortable talking about it and also like understand that this is a part of overall health. And that's what's so great about being in a med school too, is like so many people go to their doctors for their sexual health questions and like many doctors don't get any training in this. So like, thankfully our doctors do, but you know, there's a real like lack of information out there for people. And so I think it's just really important to emphasize that like there are places to go to get accurate information. Isn't there some science to to back up the fact that having a regular healthy sex life or having regular orgasms and sexual pleasure can help you live longer <laughs> from just like improve your full overall health because it improves your mental health so much? Yeah, and not even just mental health. Like it does have positive physical impacts. Like mm-hmm. I can't like cite like one off the X top of my head. amount of years or of, anything. Like the number like, of years that are added right, to your right, life right. if you have a healthy of sex course. life. But um, certainly avoiding having a like negative health outcomes, sexual health mm-hmm. outcomes, like avoiding STIs, avoiding like an unintended pregnancy, avoiding those types of things. But then also prioritizing sexual pleasure, whether that's on your own or with a partner, like that has a lot of really positive effects on our bodies. You know, Mm -hmm. it produces the happy hormone. It like gives you oxytocin, which is just this like bonding hormone that's really, really healthy and has a positive impact. It decreases our court, like an orgasm decreases cortisol levels. Cortisol is the stress hormone. Like these are all really, really positive effects from engaging in pleasurable sex. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't have to include an orgasm. Like you can have sexual pleasure without an orgasm, but orgasm is particularly healthy. (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, it does give you like a bit more of a boost, but (laughs) that's what we all want. (laughs) This is just like dietary studies where it's like, does a Mediterranean diet really help? Or is it the olive oil or the salmon or a combination of everything? And it's really hard to pinpoint just one thing because it's kind of sometimes it's the combination of everything Mm -hmm. that helps produce a healthier lifestyle Mm -hmm. as opposed to, no, if you eat salmon, you're going to be 150 years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I don't know, our science is definitely more solid than like some of those like diet sciences Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, just in terms of like we acknowledge. And I think that this is something that maybe like those particular studies too, like we keep being like, why did they tell us last year to do this and this year to do this? It's because those particular studies are also problematic in that they are sponsored by the actual diet that it exists. You know what I mean? So to be like a conscious consumer of the science too, and like to be, have a critical eye for like what science is, is really a skill that I think our society is decreasing in its like ability to Mm -hmm. do, but also is really, really increasingly necessary. So there's that, but also any of the studies that we do in my lab, like we're always saying, this is one piece of the puzzle. And we have to look at it that way. It's one piece of a puzzle that is a very complex puzzle. And like sexuality in general, no matter your gender, is complex. It's not like Mm -hmm. only women's sexuality is complex. That's such an old idea that is just like not accurate. So everyone's idea, everyone's identity and everyone's like sexual health and sexual experiences are complex. And all of the things that we find out are just like these 
pieces of the puzzle that will come together to give us a greater idea of like what it is that we need in order to have really healthy, happy, pleasure-filled sex lives. Which is the end goal for everybody that everybody should have. Every single person on this planet. That also like might mean not having sex for you, right? Like there are asexual folks who like – but coming to that conclusion and being able to be free to identify mm-hmm. that way and free to like form that identity, that's really great. And like that we need space to do that. And that's mm-hmm. part of why we need to see like variation as the norm. So absolutely. Yeah. So Kristen, where can our listeners find more of you? Yeah, they can find more of me at the Institute for Sexual and Gender Health in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at University of Minnesota Medical School. So uh, please visit her. You can visit um, our website there. And then um, my website is um, kristenmark.com and I'm on Instagram at Dr. Kristen Mark. Meredith, where can our listeners find you? Y'all can find me on Twitter and OnlyFans at the Meredith and on Instagram at actually Meredith and um, my podcast Like a Virgin um, that is streaming on all platforms. I'm also on Twitter at Kristen Mark. I forgot to say that. <laughs> and guys, you could find me Alice over on Twitter at Rational Blonde, but you can find the show at all platforms at TGM Podcast. Support the show over on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/TwoGirlsOneMike, where we have plenty of bonus content episodes. You'll find the whole video version of this as well, uh, with all of our stutters and. <laughs> And my purple red wine mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't, don't worry. Please like, subscribe, share, tell all your friends. That's what we care most about. But we also care most about you returning next week. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.